we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And our guest this week is Russell Johnson, a rancher in New Mexico right up against the border, who's got some firsthand experience about what it's like living on the border, what the various sort of meanderings related to the fence, you know, the fence is on, the fence is off, what effect that actually has on people living right on the border. So, Russell, thanks for joining us, starting your day with us. You had said before we started recording, you're going to go out and rebuild some fence later. So we appreciate you're taking some time from that and talking with us. I appreciate you having me on. So my first question is, if you could sort of give us a little background on your ranch and your family. How long have you guys been there? How did you end up there on the southern border of New Mexico, west of El Paso? How'd that come to be? So I'm a fourth-generation cow-calf rancher here in southern New Mexico. My great-grandfather came to this area in 1918 from South Texas and settled here, and we've been ranching ever since, right here against the border on the same piece of property. Was he a rancher down in South Texas? He was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He had a Ford dealership. He traded cattle, ranched, kind of a a colorful background in, in terms of jobs. So you've grown up there on the border, basically. This is where you and your parents as well, and your grandparents, I guess, all grew up. Is that correct? That's correct. I've been here my entire life. So what is a calf-cow rancher? What does that mean? What is there? Are there different kinds of ranchers? Doesn't ranching just mean you have cows? I mean, I'm speaking as a city boy, so, you know, these are stupid questions probably, but what does that actually mean? Sure. So what we do is raise beef cattle go into meat production. So our, our cattle, we raise a calf up to a certain age, wean that calf, and then he goes further through the, the feeding process and everything before he becomes a steak okay. on your dinner plate. So you've been doing this on the border for all these years. What was it like, I don't know, let's say 20 years ago or 15 years ago? Because Congress in 2006, 15 years ago, passed what was called the Secure Fence Act, and that's when we got more fencing. President Obama, then senator, and uh, voted for it, and Hillary Clinton voted for it, and Joe Biden voted for it, so um, everybody seemed to have been for fencing back then. But before that, was there fencing out there? Was it just like barbed wire to keep the cattle from wandering off? What was it like before the fencing thing became an issue? So prior to 2006, and I, I think in 2008 when we actually got a small amount of Normandy vehicle barrier, prior to that, it was in our area only a five-strand barbed wire fence that was put in and maintained by my family. Hmm. And 
you know, a barbed wire fence, its sole purpose is to keep livestock in. It doesn't do anything to keep people, drugs, vehicles out. So prior to that, you know, the, the Secure Fence Act, all we had was a barbed wire fence. And our ranch runs for a little over eight miles of U.S.-Mexico border. So we were we were charged with maintaining that. And if there was ever any damage to it, which there there always has been, because you take any amount of people climbing over a barbed wire fence, it just destroys it. So we had to maintain that. And that's something that we've tried to tell anybody that would listen, that a, that a private citizen should not be the one that's keeping up and maintaining an international boundary like that. Now, the point of the fence, of course, the the barbed wire that you all maintained was just for the cattle. Correct. Was there a ranch on the Mexican side? Are there any ranches? Because I know some, I've spoken with some ranchers, and part of the issue is to also keep the Mexican cattle out so that they don't get mixed in and there's all kinds of health issues and what have you. Correct. They kind of do a community ranching type deal on the Mexican side. There's several ranchers, their cattle co-mingle with each other. But when it came to the fencing, it was purely us that did that. The, the Mexican side didn't do anything to keep up and maintain that fence. In fact, if their cattle got over here, that was free grazing for them. Interesting. So they didn't have any incentive to uh, make sure their cattle stayed in the right place. Absolutely not. So you had mentioned that around 2008, the so-called Normandy barrier fencing went up. If you could explain a little bit for listeners, what does that mean? That's not like the fencing that President Trump talked about. That's a different kind of fencing. Right. So the Normandy fencing is, if anybody's ever watched the movie Saving Private Ryan and you see the uh, anti-tank barriers that were on the beachhead, the Normandy barriers look very similar to that. And you've got I-beams that were welded together to form kind of an X with a piece of square tubing holding them together. And then all of this was welded together along the certain sections of the border with the intent of trying to keep vehicles from crossing out of Mexico into the U.S. But it was very ineffective, especially in our area, because they didn't build it along the whole length of the border in our area. So vehicles could not only just drive around the barrier, but it come to find out they were also able to, to fashion little ramps to drive over it. Interesting. It was only, you know, about, I believe, 46 inches tall. So it was pretty easy for them to build ramps. They just drive vehicles over the barrier. The way I describe them sometimes is they're sort of, they look kind of like split rail fencing that you'd seen in Virginia where I live, except they're made of I-beams. They're made of metal. And like you said, the point is not to keep people out because you could just sort of scoot under them or over them. I mean, I have pictures of myself clowning around on various parts where these Normandy barrier fencing was. So you're telling me they didn't even have it the whole length of your connection to the border, of your ranch's eight miles of border? They only had it in some places? That's right. They built the Normandy barrier in the flat country. Ah, um, there was approximately three miles that was still left barbed wire fence, and so they just ended up driving around the, the Normandy barrier. So I don't know what that cost was to build that Normandy barrier, but the fact that they didn't build it the entire length totally negated everything that they did with that Normandy barrier because they just drove around it or ramped over it. Your government at work. Did that old 
Normandy barrier fencing, did it at least keep the cattle in? Or uh, in other words, did it serve the same purpose as the barbed wire? In some respects, it did. In our area, we fought for an extra rail to be welded to the Normandy barrier to bring it up to a taller height. Right. So that, you know, it cattle in better. And, you know, obviously these thick I-beams and square tubing is, is stronger than, than barbed wire. So, you know, as people climbed over it, uh, it didn't destroy it. So it helped us in that sense. You know, now we weren't having to maintain the five miles of Normandy that used to be barbed wire. We, we were just in charge of three miles still left. Right. But that was through some mountainous terrain that in most cases was only accessible by horseback. So it is very labor intensive to keep up that tent. Yeah, I can only imagine. And expensive. I mean, you're buying the barbed wire, right? I mean, it's not like that's free. Right, right. And there there was no compensation for, for the damage that was done to it. You know, where they would drive around the, the vehicle barriers, they just drive through the fence or cut it up. Right. So there's no compensation for that. All of that came out of pocket, and it happened on a regular basis. Interesting. Had you guys ever thought of moving somewhere not right on the border? That's a question that my family gets asked quite often. And, you know, if it was easy enough to pick up a ranch and move it, <laughs> I probably would. But, you know, we've been here for over 100 years. We've got a lot of blood, sweat, and tears invested in this land, and, and it's just we don't feel that we ought to move. It's a it's an issue that our government needs to get control of. You know, we we're living in America over here. This is silly the United States. We we should be afforded the same protections that people inland are are given. Absolutely. So tell me what happened when Trump came in and there's the more serious fencing. They call it pedestrian fencing. In other words, just taller fencing designed to keep people out. What's the story with that? When did that start and how did that go? So actual construction of the of Trump's border wall started in our area in April of 2020. Oh, okay. That late. Yeah. Yes. And it was approximately a 13.2 mile project that, that this contract was under that was going to go through our area. Started in April and they got going and and they have approximately on our ranch about three quarters of a mile that didn't get erected. And all that stopped when, when Biden signed his executive order halting all border construction. Were you pleased to see the pedestrian wall going up? Was that something you or other ranchers around you, were they for that? Absolutely. It was It was going to give us the much needed relief from all the illegal activity that, that we were all seeing coming across our ranches. And when it started going up, we just we couldn't believe it because you know we'd heard stories about it and and when you're standing next to this 30 foot tall pedestrian barrier i mean it's very humbling and you you look at it and think well th- this is going to work and it does especially when uh, all of the technology is implemented with it which we don't have in our area yet but in areas further east of us Santa Teresa they have the complete wall system which includes the wall lighting and sensor technologies that enables them to quickly detect and apprehend people that do happen to climb over it. All those things are in place to, to control it, but out in our area, we just have, you know, just 
parts of the wall, but none of the technology that was supposed to go with it. From what you understood, was that supposed to be coming? In other words, that was what they were planning for where you are? It's just that it didn't happen when Biden pulled the plug on the project? Yes, and that's what's really frustrating is, is all of the materials that are sitting down here staged to complete the project. It's all sitting down here, bought and paid for, sitting in yards, and it, it's been abandoned. So you said there's a three-quarter mile gap there in the fencing they didn't finish. What comes through there? Is traffic being funneled through there that otherwise wouldn't have come there? In other words, is it more concentrated because of that gap? It is more concentrated, and with the uh, influx of people coming through in South Texas, that's actually impacting us because they don't have enough agents down in South Texas to, to process all these people, so they're starting to fly them into El Paso for process, which is kind of our sector headquarters for our area of in terms of border patrol, and so it's pulling our agents that control our area out of the field into processing, and so places like this three-quarter mile gap are not being monitored. It's not being patrolled, so it's a lot easier to go through that gap than to try to climb over the wall, so it's definitely concentrated all the traffic to that gap in our area. And how's that affected you all? Your house isn't that far from that, right? Have you noticed this in your own kind of personal affairs, this concentrated traffic? Oh, absolutely. My dog barks every night, and you know, it. by the way your dog barks, it's kind of funny. They've got kind of a language. You can tell when she's barking at coyotes or when she's barking at people, hmm. and every night, it's just nonstop. My parents live down the road from me a little over a mile and their dog is the same way just every night constantly and it'll be you know that dog will bark for about 10 minutes and then she stops you're know, like well that was one group that walked through she finally quit barking because they got far enough away that she didn't deem them a threat anymore and then here in a couple hours she'll start barking again for about 10 minutes and it's just non-stop every night have you seen any damage to water facilities or to any of your outbuildings or anything like that? Yes. We've had three storage tanks, water storage tanks for our livestock, damaged and drained that amounted to at least 50,000 gallons of water lost. That is a very precious commodity out here. We're, we're a desert. We have to pump all of the water that, that we use. So when you lose that amount of water and run your cattle out of water, it's very detrimental. So we've, we've experienced that kind of damage. They push fences down, and these are fences that, that are not just between our pastures, but between neighboring ranches, which can be really bad. They leave trash. What's the issue with the neighboring ranches? In other words, your cattle in co-mingle? You have to go and figure out who's who? Correct. you got to go get your cattle back. Certain ranches might have different vaccinating protocols oh, oh. or different breeds. And, you know, if, if I'm running Angus bulls and my neighbor is running Bremer bulls, well, that, that, that can impact my business in the sense of, you know, the crossbreeding there. We don't, we don't want that. I see. So you said trash, too? I mean, I've seen some other parts of the border in Arizona. I mean, I've seen just piles of trash. What's it like by you? So what we get is a lot of backpacks clothing. So 
So these people that are crossing, they're they're wearing full camouflage. Wow. They're legitimately trying to sneak in. That's the difference in the people that you see on the news in South Texas that are giving themselves up versus what we have out here. The people we have crossing out here don't want to be caught. They're trying to literally sneak into the United States undetected. So they're wearing full body camouflage. And whenever they get to their pickup spot, they generally ditch their backpacks and their camouflage clothing to try to blend in with the community. And so our ranch and neighboring ranches are just littered with camouflage clothing and backpacks. And my parents and I, we've talked about it. All of this backpack clothing and stuff, it, it, it's horrible. That stuff just lays out there and rots. But we're honestly, we're a little bit nervous about handling it and picking it up to, to get rid of it because of the possibility that it could be contaminated with drugs. And we all know how dangerous fentanyl is, so we don't even touch this stuff. Interesting. So it just lays out there to rot because we don't want to endanger ourselves by trying to clean it up. Aren't you worried, though, about the livestock maybe getting into it? It is a concern, and we've had issues with that in the past. You know, if a cow eats a plastic sack sure. or, or we've had instances where a calf will stick his foot through a sardine can and if you don't catch it quick enough as that calf grows, that sardine oh. can doesn't. And so, you know, you end up with injuries from stuff like that. Interesting. Have you felt any actual danger or threat? In other words, this is all bad stuff, but it's a money issue. It's cost that's imposed on you guys. Have you guys had, you know, physical safety feel threatened as well? No, but what worries me is because we're in such a remote and isolated area these people crossing often get lost, or if they, they get hurt, their smuggler just leaves them behind. And so those are the people that, that end up at our homes. And if they're already at that point, they're usually pretty desperate. Those are the ones that I worry about, you know, breaking into my house, harming my family because they're needing these basic human needs of food, water, and shelter. And if they're to that point of desperation, they're going to do whatever they need to do to get that stuff. So that's what concerns me. Have you found any people, you know, lost wandering around or God forbid, any people dead? We've had people that have walked into our house that, that said they were lost, been out of food and water for days and want to use the phone to call their smuggler. And <laughs> so obviously we turn those people over to Border Patrol. Right. But in terms of death, there have been a handful of bodies found out here on there's been one found on our ranch and several found on a neighboring ranch. And that's been an issue of itself. You know, what are these people dying of? Are they dying purely of exposure to the elements or do they have some kind of illness that oh, well, progressively true. gets worse as they come over here? And that's something that we're having to kind of get worked out with the local authorities is we need advised whenever these people are found because oftentimes they make their way to a livestock water in hopes of being found and then succumb to whatever's you know got to them and then now we're left with after they come and remove the body we're left with the uh, aftermath of all that i don't want to get too graphic on your show here but so it's potential contamination basically of the water is that what you're saying the water or the or the surrounding areas you right. know and we're not being told that, hey, there's been a body found on your ranch in this area, you know, that wet spot is not 
water or from sure. your livestock that was from a body that was found out here. Wow. What kind of relationship do you guys have with Border Patrol? Sometimes it depends on who the head of the station is, what kind of community relations there are. How's the relation that you and your other ranchers nearby have with the local Border Patrol? We have a very good relationship with the Border Patrol. Like I mentioned earlier, we're so remote included that our local sheriff's department, same with any law enforcement agency these days, is, is a stretch for manpower. And so when it comes to our law enforcement needs, quickest ones to respond is always Border Patrol. And we report stuff to them. They let us know if we have problems. So we, we have a very good working relationship with Border Patrol. Have you and other ranchers, I don't, have you sort of gotten together in any way to act collectively in dealing with, I don't know, the feds or the state or anybody else? Because some places like Arizona, I think, has the Southern Arizona Cattlemen's Association, I think it's called, where they, you know, they basically advocate for their members on border-related issues. Is anything like that going on by you? No, not really. I mean, the closest thing that we've had to that is back in April, we had, and, and it was just Republican members, Republican members of the House Oversight Committee right. came down and we gathered a, a handful of ranchers from our area and had a meeting with them and did a border tour to explain to them the issues that are surrounding this. But that's kind of about the only thing that's been organized around here. Your local congresswoman is pretty involved in border issues. Do you have a relationship with her office? Yes. Our Congresswoman Yvette Harrell, she's been very, very helpful in trying to address this. And I've also been in contact with both of our federal senators, our state government. I've been engaged with them as well. And there's no appetite from the left without trying to get too political here, there's no appetite from the left to, to address this issue, much less fix it. Again, not to get too political, but unlike Texas, the governor in New Mexico is a Democrat. Have they been responsive? Has the state government been responsive to your concerns? No, they haven't. In fact, I've reached out to them multiple times via email, phone calls, and it's getting to the point that they don't even respond to me anymore. And I, I like to think I'm a pretty reasonable person. I'm living here under some, what I feel is unreasonable circumstances, and they don't even want to listen to me anymore. You know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm asking for much to be safe and secure on our own property in our own country, and they, they don't even want to touch the issue. So as far as what's coming through, you made the point that down in South Texas or in Del Rio, where all the news coverage has been, people there are basically turning themselves in to the Border Patrol because they're making some kind of claim about asylum. Usually it's bogus, but it gets them past the Border Patrol. Out where you are, there's nobody to turn themselves in to. I mean, there's, like you said, there's no Border Patrol around, really, at least not very much. And so it would not make sense for people who want to turn themselves in to go where you are. So these are people who don't want to be caught, as you said. Some of those presumably are criminal aliens. Others are going to be people who've been deported before, and it's a felony to come back if you've been formally deported. Some of them presumably are also smuggling dope. Do you have any firsthand sort of brushes with 
people involved in you know with the drug smuggling in one way or another? I haven't personally no, but people in the surrounding area have. What kind of stuff have you heard? Have they run up against drug smugglers, or have they just found like the evidence of them left behind? What have they seen? It's primarily the evidence that's left behind. Most of the time, these dope smugglers, if they feel they're going to be caught, they usually ditch their contraband and, and try to make it back south to Mexico because obviously the charges are steeper for uh, smuggling you know, narcotics into the country versus just entering illegally. So right. they usually try not to get caught. Interesting. You said there's this three-quarters of a mile gap on your land. There's also, if I remember, there's a gate kind of thing that's also unfinished. Could you just tell us about that? In other words, why would there be a gate in the fence? It starts on the Rio Grande River. There's border monuments, big, tall, white, plaster monuments. And just to delineate you know, the difference in Mexico and the United States, and those are kept up and maintained by the uh, International mm-hmm. Boundary and Water Commission, IBWC. Right. And they needed access to those monuments for the upkeep, and so there were supposed to be gates installed for them to be able to access them. Right. Well, in that particular area, the, the gate was not installed, so you've got basically a doorway, about a 20-foot doorway that has no gate in it, so that's another funneling point that's on our ranch. So another... there's. So there's an actual gate in the fence. This is an open gate in the fence. I mean, there's like in Arizona, I've seen some places they have gates, but those are designed to be open during monsoon season. So the water goes through, but this is a gate with no, with no door. I mean, it's almost the opposite of the, uh, that scene in Blazing Saddles where there's a toll booth out in the middle of nowhere and they're lining up to go to the toll booth. This is sort of the opposite. There's a fence and then there's this, gate, this opening in it, and people just come through it. It's kind of surreal. Right. What would you like the Biden administration to do about this? Well, first things first, especially with all the materials already here, they need to put these contractors back to work on this border wall and finish the wall and finish all the technology that was supposed to go with it. Because like I say, all the materials are already here. They just need the workers to come put them back in. Yeah, right. that that needs to be the first thing. And then obviously our immigration system's broken. There there's so many different loopholes and everything, it needs revamped. You said the group of congressmen came out and visited the border by you. Have any congressmen specifically congressional offices specifically talked to you about what do you suggest or to come and tell them your story, anything like that? I've spoke briefly with McCarthy's office. Mm-hmm. and basically just told them, you know, our story, you know, the things that we have to deal with and everything so that he could better inform his constituents and other members of Congress. But the handwriting's on the wall. Everybody knows what, what needs to be done to fix this. It's just a matter of the party in power actually doing something about it. Right. Well, I appreciate your uh, visiting with us, Russell, and I'll let you go out and restring your barbed wire or whatever you fix your fencing in the short run you're probably going to have to deal with that gap in the fence because i don't see the current administration even just cleaning up those kind of 
almost loose ends. I mean, if they don't want to build new fencing, I get that. But in a sense, a three-quarters of a mile gap is kind of scandalous to just allow it to sit there and impact the people who are on the other side of it. But eventually, you know, fingers crossed, that gap will get filled. It's not magically going to solve everything, but it'll, it seems like it would make it a lot less, a lot less problematic than it is now. Right. So uh, anyway, appreciate it. Good luck to you. And maybe we'll catch up with you if, they, if the government or some other administration ever ends up plugging that hole in the fence. This has been Russell Johnson, a rancher in southern New Mexico, right up against the border, telling us about his experiences, especially specifically about there being a gap left in the fence when President Biden ordered uh, all work to be halted on the fence, leaving this funnel for illegal traffic right onto his ranch. Thanks for joining us, Russell. Thank you. And finally, on this Veterans Day, I wanted to thank all of those who have served our country in uniform and also note that it's the 100th anniversary of the dedication of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. And that really puts an exclamation point, as it were, on the absurd news that the Wall Street Journal got hold of, that the administration was negotiating payments of up to $450,000 per person to families that were separated by the short-lived Trump-era zero-tolerance policy because, you know, not only, I mean, the amount is absurd on its face. When President Biden was asked about it, he actually responded as kind of a normal person would, saying that that's absurd and preposterous and who came up with that? Fortunately, the people in his own government, immediately they walked it back. The ACLU said, well, obviously somebody's not briefing the president on what his own administration is doing. But it is an outrageous example of an administration in cahoots with its allies on the outside, inviting them, in effect, to sue and then settling for a ridiculous amount of money. This kind of thing, this uh, sue and settle strategy is commonly used, especially on the left. And, you know, people noted that the amount of money that potentially illegal immigrants supposedly for the psychological trauma they suffered were going to be getting paid more than the families of fallen soldiers who get, according to the Pentagon website, what's called a death gratuity of $100,000. We've also written by one of our fellows, Ron Mortensen, who is what is known as a downwinder, who are the American citizens who were downwind of the above-ground nuclear tests that were conducted years ago in the 50s and I think 60s too. And those people, if they somehow manage to make it through the bureaucracy and the uh, various requirements, get only 50,000. And even Border Patrol officers who are killed in the line of duty as public safety officers, there's a federal program where they get a payment, which is actually larger, it seems, than the one for soldiers for the current fiscal year, a law enforcement officer who dies in the line of duty gets almost $390,000, or the family does. The point is they were negotiating an even larger amount than fallen Americans. In fact, the $450,000 floated amount turns out, I looked up the annual income in Guatemala 
and it turns out to be 51 years worth of wages in Guatemala, essentially an entire working life's worth of payment. So essentially, it's a kind of lottery payment. And the outrageousness of it, everybody has noted. But I would just take one point from Andrew McCarthy, a longtime federal prosecutor who writes for National Review now. He wrote a piece on this, and his point was that, I'll just read the last sentence, even if the law has been enforced more exactingly than, from a humanitarian perspective, the circumstances may have warranted, it cannot be an actionable tort to execute Congress's laws as written, unquote. And his point is that there was no legal harm because the zero-tolerance policy, whether it was politically advisable or not, is a separate question, but it was simply implementing the laws that Congress has passed, because everyone crossing the border is committing a federal crime, as well as an administrative or civil offense, but it's also a crime to sneak across the border. And what the zero-tolerance policy did merely is, as the name suggests, prosecute everybody who committed that crime. And in the process of doing that, they ended up with the family separation problem. So there are political objections you can make. There was no tort committed is the legal term for it. In other words, a harm that you can sue for. And the administration, rather than fighting what is a baseless lawsuit by the ACLU and others, instead essentially is working with its allies. The ACLU is allied with the administration to get them a win and presumably also to get them a large pot of money because as lawyers, they would be getting legal fees out of this as well. So there are many facets to the outrageousness of the news that the Justice Department was negotiating to make, essentially to make millionaires out of illegal immigrants who snuck across the border. And, you know, it's more than just the amount of money and sort of the sputtering absurdity of it. It's ridiculous in a whole variety of ways. It's clearly not going to happen the way they wanted it to now that it's been exposed to the light of day. There's legislation either has been introduced or is going to be introduced to uh, prohibit in statute that kind of settlement. It probably won't go anywhere because Republicans are introducing it. But it's important to note the impropriety, even in a legal sense, of this kind of inside dealing where an administration was essentially trying to hand a win over to its outside allies. This is the kind of thing that comes up not just in immigration, but in other policy areas, and we need to be alert to it. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off for Parsing Immigration Policy. Until next week, thank you.